Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Outpost. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's bureau in San Francisco. It is Thursday, December 12th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. CAR-T cancer therapy was billed as the revolutionary future of oncology, but new data paint a slightly more complicated picture. We'll discuss the news from a major hematology conference. It's been three years now since Sarepta Therapeutics won a controversial FDA approval for Duchenne muscular dystrophy treatment. We'll talk to former Sarepta CEO Chris Garabedian about the ripple effects of that decision. More people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are being diagnosed with colorectal cancer than ever before. It's an alarming trend that has spawned one such patient to become an activist and raise public awareness of the problem. We'll bring you her story. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Helix, a population genomics company working at the intersection of clinical care, research, and genomics. Helix's versatile Exome Plus assay and scalable research platform makes it possible to perform population-scale genetic analysis and to uncover novel genotype-phenotype associations. Learn more about Helix's offering at helix.com stat. That's H-E-L-I-X dot forward slash stat. Just a few years ago, as CAR-T cancer therapies were proving their promise in clinical trials, we were all promised a future in which genetically engineered immune cells would revolutionize oncology. That has come true in some ways, and it's to be determined in lots of others. But in the meantime, a few new technologies have emerged, and they look like they might provide a more attractive alternative to the CAR-T treatments that got so much hype. So that narrative came to light at the American Society of Hematology meeting in Orlando, Florida this week, where companies presented new data on therapies for blood cancer. Adam, you were there for the meeting. Tell us, is CAR-T losing its luster? I saw a lot of data at the ASH meeting this year that showed some really effective CAR-T therapies. At the same time, you know, there are these bispecific antibodies that are targeting the same targets on cancer cells that look really promising. And I think they're coming quickly. So as we see these bispecifics emerging, what are the key differences, both technologically and effectively, between CAR-T and, and bispecific antibodies? You know, we've talked about both of these kinds of therapies on the podcast before. And of course, the big difference is CAR-T therapies are, you know, they're engineered cell therapies, but they are personalized for each patient. So each time that a patient gets a CAR-T therapy, it has to be made for that patient. It's a complicated, time-consuming process. Probably the biggest advantage for bispecific antibodies are that they're off the shelf, that any patient can take them. You know, they also basically bring the immune system to the cancer cell. But again, they have the advantage of being off the shelf. So speaking of new approaches to treating cancer, Adam, you also wrote about the future of cell therapies, which includes off-the-shelf treatments. Tell us, what's going on in that space? Yeah, so I think looking ahead, I did a story about one company called Faith Therapeutics. They are basically turning stem cells into cellular therapies for cancer. They take adult cells and then they reprogram them back to their stem cell state. And as you know, stem cells can be sort of differentiated into any kind of cells. And they essentially create like this master stem cell bank, which then they can take those cells and then turn them into what are called NK cells or natural killer cells. And they are cells in the body that go after tumors or other pathogens. So basically, they kind of create these cells that will also sort of use the immune system to attack cancer cells. And then they actually go one step further, which is pretty cool, which is they take those NK cells and they engineer them. So they add kind of 
doohickeys and other thingamajigs, and, and those are actually scientific terms, and we'll, we'll use those terms from now on on the podcast. But they actually add, they engineer those cells to you know further target cancer cells, just like CAR T cells do, just like bispecifics do, but they're doing it with these NK cells. And this therapy is off the shelf. So it can be given theoretically to any patient. The big news at ASH this year was they had some early, early data. A, one, is that it was safe, that you can basically give these NK cells to a patient and the patient's body doesn't reject them. And then they had, at least in one patient, they had some a very early signal of efficacy. This was in a leukemia patient who essentially was in the hospital in October. No other therapies were working for that patient. They got these NK cells from Faith Therapeutics and the patient actually was able to go home and spend Thanksgiving with uh, his family. It's not necessarily clear that, you know, this is going to work long term. They need to collect more data. But it is really kind of showing you sort of the future of where this is all going. So Ash wasn't entirely focused on oncology. We also saw data from gene therapies for blood diseases. Adam, what's going on in that space? Yeah, largely incremental meaning with regards to gene therapies for diseases like beta thalassemia, sickle cell disease. One thing I thought was kind of notable, we saw some longer term data from Bluebird's gene therapy in sickle cell. And you really got a sense of kind of how patients were benefiting from gene therapy. They had a subset of patients that had really had a very, very extensive disease. We know like sickle cell disease, patients have these pain crises that often sends them to the hospital. And so they had a subset of patients that had like really, really extensive history of pain crises prior to their gene therapy. Like some of these patients had like 10, 20 episodes every year. They take the gene therapy. And since then, essentially, none of these patients have had pain crises since the gene therapy. I think a single patient had one minor pain crisis since that time. So it really kind of speaks to the kind of the functional cure or the cure that you can have with a gene therapy in that disease. So Adam, I want to ask you a little bit more about the conference itself. You've been going to ASH on and off for the past two decades. How has the meeting changed over the years? I think the ASH meeting, like a lot of medical meetings, have gotten a lot more complicated and complicated in a good way in that the science has become a lot more complex. I mean, we know a lot more about the molecular underpinnings of blood diseases, you know, the genetics of these diseases. So, you know, whereas before you had these broad categories like, oh, we're treating lymphomas or leukemias. Now, like, you know, everything sort of has a molecular target attached to it. So, you know, in that way, it's good in that, you know, just like in other cancer meetings, whether we go to ASCO or or even other diseases, where a lot of the treatments uh, that are being discussed, that are being developed, the data that are being presented are just much more highly targeted. This September marked the third anniversary of a pivotal moment in biotech. Back in 2016, Sarepta Therapeutics convinced the FDA to approve a treatment for Duchenne muscular dystrophy based on preliminary evidence from a tiny clinical trial. Critics, and there were many, argued that Sarepta hadn't done enough to prove that its drug could actually help patients. And there were countless tweets and editorials claiming that FDA had set a dangerous precedent by approving the company's medicine. Chris Garabedian is the former CEO of Sarepta, and he was, in many ways, the architect of the company's strategy when it came to dealing with the FDA back then. 
We've got Chris on the podcast today, and we, of course, want to talk to him about all the stuff he's been up to since then, but we figured we'd start with a look back. So first of all, Chris, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Excited to be part of the podcast. So Chris, going back four or five years, as Sarepta was preparing to file for approval, did you have a sense back then that this was going to become a story that was bigger than any one company? I did not. And, you know, it really did create a life of its own. Uh, it was a very polarizing choice to go after an accelerated approval at that time. I, I think it's less controversial now as many rare disease companies have pursued accelerated approval on small data sets. But I think what made it particularly controversial is we had a competitive situation. Uh, you had a direct competitor in Procense at the time that became Biomarin. You had a PTC going after another dystrophin-producing technology. And I think that added to it. I think you had bulls and bears on the investment side. You had advocacy that had different kind of postures and aligning with different companies. And, you know, I was uh, the CEO, so I took a lot of the attention from, you know, do we support this or not? And I think, honestly, the reason it became a more controversial decision was the data set was equivocal. I think you could argue the, you know, robustness of the clinical utility. I still believe the drug has benefit and, you know, deserve to be approved, but I also understand the controversy that ensued. So at the time of the approval, there was fairly widespread concern that the FDA had set a precedent that would allow drug companies to market medicines that might not actually work. Do you think that has come true in any way? I don't think it's come true. I think it has emboldened many biotechs to try to pursue accelerated approval on whether it be biomarker data, oftentimes that are less validated, uh, less characterized biomarkers, or small clinical data sets. But, you know, this is a challenge for rare disease drug development. You don't have a lot of natural history for many of these diseases. You don't have validated endpoints. At the time, six-minute walk was the, quote, gold standard for neuromuscular uh, disease, and everybody criticized it. There wasn't anything better, but but now everybody's in search of a better clinical outcome measure. So I think this is something that is not going to be easily solved. I do applaud the FDA for at least their posture of being flexible, supporting RWE, you know, real world evidence, patient reported outcomes, you know, being flexible with trial designs. So I think there is more of a meeting halfway between the agency and sponsors. But, you know, I, I think you really have to look at it on an individual, you know, company by company basis. So the FDA's next big and controversial decision will come not in rare disease, but in Alzheimer's disease. Sometime next year, the agency will have to decide whether Biogen has enough evidence to support the idea that a drug called aducanumab can actually delay mental decline. So as someone who's been you know, involved in the process of push and pull and FDA um, discussions, what do you think should happen with aducanumab and what do you think will happen? Yeah, you know, it's funny. People have made parallels to Sarepta and, and Biogen's attempt. And whether this is the motivation or not is can you use the public health of needing treatments for Alzheimer's to, you know, leverage that against the FDA to try to push a drug approval? I think historically the FDA has been, you know, uh, more concerned about unnecessary exposure to drugs and safety risk in broad 
based populations where you have, you know, millions. If you look at diabetes or, you know, obesity and and cardiovascular disease, the risk benefit ratio is really shifted in terms of how the FDA looks at that. And, you know, I think Alzheimer's is an interesting, you know, where you have a more elderly population. There's not many options. I understand the rationale for why not try to get it approved. I think from the FDA standpoint, I think they're not going to do this lightly to set a unnecessary precedent. I think they're going to have cover in, uh, you know, public advisory meetings and try to orchestrate, you know, what they hope to uh, see the outcome uh, appropriately that way. I do think that FDA knows that this could be interpreted as a precedent and, you know, some would say a risky precedent. And then there's always the thing of if you have drugs that are approved and patients taking a drug that is not as robust in terms of efficacy, does that really uh, lock out, you know, ease of enrolling other patients? You know, are you uh, limiting options that might be down the pipeline? And this was some of the argument even going back to DMD. So yeah, it'll be interesting. I'll be watching on the sidelines like everybody else to see uh, what happens with that. So Chris, since your days at Sarepta, you've gotten into the company creation business. Uh, You run a group called Zontogeny, and you've been working with the fund Perceptive Advisors to invest in early stage companies. There's a lot of money going into biotech startups these days. What is your approach to picking new ideas and how does it stand out? Yeah, you know, I I think it's important to say that the Zontogeny was started because I saw a gap in the company creation model. And that was that as the large, well-known venture firms were getting bigger and bigger with larger funds, half a billion to billion dollar funds, they were starting to deploy, you know, series A rounds of, you know, 40, 60, 80 million dollars, sometimes 100 million. And I realized that it was locking out a lot of the entrepreneurs, scientific founders with a good idea who needed 10 million right? Or some seed capital. But interestingly, they also realized they needed help. They really uh, wanted that industry oversight, mentorship. And that's when I realized like there's a lot of good technologies and a lot of good products that deserve to be in the clinic. I didn't want to just, you know, collect a bunch of board seats and sit on a, a board meeting every quarter and try to hope to have an influence. I said, the only way to do this right is to actually build a team, raise some capital to do some seed investments and really partner with these entrepreneurs, scientific founders, and with the promise that we're not going to overly dilute you with a $50 million Series A to own 90% of the company, but that we will work with you and we'll honor you. We'll make sure that you get upside if you partner with us on your idea. And so that's how Zontogeny was born. And perceptive, you know, I had a lot of experience as a public company CEO working with kind of the best and brightest of public equity investors. I think perceptive is is the best out there, their analyst team and, and how they think about diligence. And so they were a natural to go to to support it. They liked the idea of this company creation model and serving what I describe as the middle market. And they quickly said, Chris, why don't you join us and help us launch our first, you know, pure play venture fund that focuses on series A rounds of that size. And uh, it was a real good match. You know, they were not equipped, nor did they have the will to double their size just to manage a venture fund. So the Zontogeny model and team, you know, was appropriate. And frankly, the perceptive, you know, hedge fund and principals are majority holders of Zontogeny. So it really is under the, the same umbrella. So Chris, Zontogeny and Perceptive unveiled a new venture fund to invest in early stage companies this week. That formalizes a structure for making investments that you've test run in the past few years. Could you tell us about a few of those investments? 
Yeah, well, actually, the, the first deal we closed was Landos Biopharma. That was in uh, September of 17. That was launched as the first tranche out of the hedge fund because we didn't have money to deploy at that point from the venture fund. The second tranche of the Series A of Landos came from the venture fund. We closed a Series B that was co-led by uh, the, the Perceptive Zontagenaire PXV fund and RTW, another well-known uh, crossover fund. And that was a $60 million Series B. But the second one, still partially out of stealth mode, Quellus Biosciences. We uh, seed invested this company. It was an idea on a napkin, basically, to improve upon a drug for rare disease that we thought was not optimized. So, Chris, what is the exit strategy for Zontogeny portfolio companies? You say, you know, you're not looking to do big platform type companies. What's the strategy there? Uh, the exits will be either IPO or a trade sale to a you know pharma biotech company, but we really are focused on good drug development and getting to that data set. We don't want to invest in anything just because it's a good story. We want to really believe, and all the analysts at Perceptive and Joe and Adam, the principals at Perceptive, need to be nodding their heads uh, to say, yeah, we think this will work if we just do good you know, execution on, on the science. Chris, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. We're going to talk about a really alarming trend in cancer, the unexplained rise of rectal and colon cancers in people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. So a 2017 study from the American Cancer Society quantified the issue. Researchers there found that people born in 1990 have double the risk of colon cancer and quadruple the risk of rectal cancer compared to people born around 1950. And that, we should note, is adjusting for age. Researchers have some hypotheses about what's going on. Rising rates of obesity and changing diets may play a role, but they don't have a full handle on the issue and how to address it. In the meantime, patient activists are trying to raise awareness. One of those patient activists is Manju George, who was diagnosed with stage three rectal cancer two years ago at age 44. Manju also has perspective on the science side of things. By training, she's a veterinarian, and she has a PhD in virology, as well as postdoctoral training in cell and cancer biology. Manju joins us now. Manju, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Manju, tell us about your personal experience being diagnosed with rectal cancer. I was diagnosed um, with stage 3B rectal cancer in 2017. I have actually no risk factors. I have been a non-smoker, led an active life. Eating red meat is supposed to be a big risk factor. I eat red meat maybe once or twice a year. I have a glass of wine maybe for Christmas. I have no family history of any kind of cancer, yet I was diagnosed with stage 3B rectal cancer. I volunteer at Colentown, a colorectal cancer support group. We were kind of discussing what are the risk factors for many of us diagnosed so early. And it seems that having a rectum or colon is actually the biggest risk factor. So how did you get into wanting to raise awareness about young onset colorectal cancer? This March, which is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, I kind of thought that I'll ask a bunch of people in Colentown to kind of talk about their experiences. I knew that there were many young people in Colentown that were diagnosed before age 45. So I started a post saying, hey, here is my experience. Let me know what your experiences were. And um, then I got a lot of posts and it was kind of, you know, really heart-wrenching to go through the posts because 
there was stories of misdiagnosis and delayed diagnosis where it took, you know, a few years for people to get diagnosed. And one of the main reasons was that they were too young and apparently too healthy to have colorectal cancer. So Manju, what are some of the issues that cause young people to not get a colorectal cancer diagnosis swiftly? So many people present with clinical symptoms which are kind of vague. They may have some rectal bleeding or some vague discomfort in their stomach. Most of these symptoms can be because of anything. And because people don't believe that young people can have colorectal cancer when they go to their primary care doctor. It's usually dismissed as, oh, it may be hemorrhoids. Why don't you change your diet and eat more fiber? And that's the kind of response that people get. And many of the patients go back home and try to do um, some changes in their lifestyle, try some over-the-counter products, and then nothing happens. And then their symptoms get progressively worse. And then they go back to the doctor and then the doctor might say, okay, yeah, why don't you do this or something else? And then it seems that people have to go back to their doctors multiple times or go to the emergency department. And then only after they insist, do they get a CT scan or a colonoscopy? You'd mentioned that we may have to change our thought process about the impact of the lives lost or affected in this younger population because of colorectal cancer. You know, tell us what you mean by that. If you look at the absolute numbers of people dying due to colorectal cancer, maybe the numbers are much fewer in the younger population when compared to the older population. But if you look at the real impact of being diagnosed at a young age, that's a time when, you know, if you're in your 30s or 40s, that's a time you're thinking about your career, you're starting a family. And in that situation, when you get diagnosed, the impact of the disease is kind of different than how it is when you're diagnosed later. For example, when a young person gets diagnosed, as I said before, it's usually after multiple rounds of going to different doctors. And because many of the doctors dismiss the symptoms, the person starts to doubt himself or herself thinking, is this real? Am I imagining it? Am I, you know, being more stressed about being sick when I'm really not? And then after diagnosis, you know, with colorectal cancer, you have to have surgical resection of the tumor and that part of the colon. That leads to a lot of digestive issues, like you have to use the bathroom a lot more. Uh, there are people who have to go on disability because post-surgical quality of life is so bad. With rectal cancer, you have to have radiation. That affects a whole variety of things. You can have urinary incontinence. You can have sexual dysfunction. So in that age group of, you know, people in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s, these are big things. So in part because of the rising rates of colorectal cancer among young people, there's been a recent change in recommendations. The American Cancer Society last year uh, began recommending that colon cancer screening starts earlier, at age 45 instead of 50. Do you have any thoughts on, on how we should approach screening in young people compared with the over 50 crowd? I do agree that maybe increasing the use of colonoscopies in the really young people, like those who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s, might not be the best idea. But there are a lot of other non-invasive screening tests that can be done in the younger population. It's not that you need more or different screening procedures or tests because we already have the tests available. In my opinion, a young person who's apparently healthy when they come to the doctor complaining of some non-specific GI symptoms, 
I think the best thing for that doctor is to keep this idea of the rising rates of rectal and colon cancer in their mind and then do a thorough workup. So if you think it's hemorrhoids, do a rectal exam. Find those hemorrhoids. If you think it's a diet issue, have the person change the diet, come back and ask them to do a follow-up in a specified time. So by doing such things, you can increase the chance of following up well and diagnosing the cases. The other idea that I have is like, for example, women in their 20s and 30s and, you know, almost to the rest of their life, they get pap smears at annual physicals. It would be a good idea for young people to have, you know, a thorough history. Is there colorectal cancer in your family? Um, has anybody in your family been diagnosed with polyps? Take that history and then suggest that they get a stool test. That's a simple non-invasive test with no risk. And the time delay between developing a polyp and the polyp getting changed into a adenoma and adenocarcinoma, the time scale is about 10 to 20 years. So you really have that time frame during which you can use multiple tests, which by itself may not be sensitive enough, but done along you know, the course of one or two or three or four or five years can identify that person who's at increased risk. So Maji, we should ask, how are you doing? How is your health right now? I'm doing well. I do have some digestive issues because I don't have my sigmoid colon and part of the rectum. But other than that, I'm doing great. We're glad to hear that, Manju. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this important issue. Thank you very much. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which guests you'd like us to have on the show next week. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please do leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 